So if you have your Bibles, we're still in Ephesians 6. We're talking about children today, specifically being a child. And we're talking about family relationships this month in February. We've talked about being husband and wife and how we relate to each other and how necessary it is to have God as an active part in your marriage. And of course, whenever I... I preached on that, and I got in a, not a big argument, but there was some friction between Sarah and myself that week when I talked about that. In the last couple weeks, I've been talking about parent parent relationships and parents to children these last two weeks, and of course, in that time, I butt heads with my parents, and it's like, are you testing me on the things I'm preaching on God? And he's probably like, yes, I am. So, um, having children... We talked about last week not to push our kids' buttons and to try to have a healthy uh, relationship. And it's incredibly challenging, but also what God wants for us. Uh, He wants healthy relationships where everyone grows and matures together. I think even as parents, they don't give you a manual. I didn't get a manual when my kids were born. They weren't like, here's how to be a dad. Uh, He wants us to grow in our ability to parent as well as our kids' ability to learn and to become a human. And since we looked at the parenting side of things last week, this week we're going to be looking at the children's side of things. Uh, Because everyone here has been a child at some point. If you're alive right now, at some point you were a kid. And you had a parent over you. You may not be married yet. Or you're not married now. You may not be a parent yet. But you, everyone here is a creation of two other people. You have two parents. You have a mom and a dad who made you. It's gross, I know, but uh, your relationship with these two people is actually very important. Your relationship with your parents is incredibly important uh, for your psychological and spiritual health. And it's actually something I ask when we do interviews uh, at Kids Kingdom and, and here too. I ask people about their relationship with their dad and with their mom. And they look at me kind of like, why are you asking me about this? I'm like, well, it kind of tells me a lot about you. If I know you have a strained relationship with your dad or with your mom, that's going to let me know how you're going to interact with me, who basically, as your boss, becomes a father figure to you. And I know if you disrespect your parents or you don't, I ask you what your relationship with your parents like, and you're like, it's fine. And I try to probe and you don't get, I don't get anywhere. I go, okay, keep my eye on this person. And your own relationship with your parents might be great, it might be terrible, but it is important. And as I look at my own life, I realize that as I preach about being a child, I look at this sermon sort of two ways. On the one hand, I have my own dad. You guys have met my dad. My dad's a wonderful guy. And I have my own mom. My mom's awesome. I am their child. And I look at this children's side of things, and I think, what do I owe my parents? As a grown adult, my parents who are almost 60, what do I owe them as my parents, as their child? And on the other hand, I have my three small children, Seth, Nat, and Ben. And I look at these three children that I love very much, that are a handful, and I say, what do they owe me? As their dad, what do these small children owe to me? Can the same set of rules apply to both groups? Well, yes and no. It would be ridiculous to think that I have to listen to my dad the same way that my kids have to listen to me. Though at the core, the relationship is the same. Seth is my son, I am his dad. George is my dad, I am his son. And growing up in my parents' house, I loved being a child. It was great. I had a wonderful childhood. 
actually talked with Chris about this this week. I liked being a kid. But bedtime was always a very important thing. Growing up, 8 p.m., everyone in my house was asleep. I remember as very, very little, up until I was in middle school, and I'll get to that. But 8 o'clock was our bedtime. The kids were in bed. Mom and dad were in bed at 8 o'clock. Everybody was asleep at 8 o'clock. As mom, mom and dad, Stephanie, Bobby, Danny, Andy, Kenny, everybody was asleep at 8. Even when I was in high school, my dad, in theory, allowed me to stay up to 8.30 or 9 o'clock, which, <laughs> as a teenager, I would stretch to like 10, 10.30. But even though we were allowed to stay up later, it was frowned upon, and you had to be like ninja quiet. My dad, for the longest time, would not, would ha- had to sleep with his door open, because they were always small. My parents kept having kids. We'd ask for a dog, they'd have another kid. We'd ask for a cat, they'd have another kid. And you're like, this isn't what I asked for. It's like the worst Christmas ever. Ah, guess what? You're getting a brother. Ah, great. I got like six of those. Can we go to Disney World instead? But we had to be ninja quiet. So my dad always slept with his door open, which means any noise you made, he'd hear about it, and he'd be like, it was bedtime. And you're like, it's like 9.15. <laughs> but let's say, so bedtime was huge. Eight o'clock, very strictly enforced. Let's say one night this week, like 8, 8.30, my dad calls me. I'm like, hey, my dad's calling me. Hey, dad, what's up? He said, Bobby, it's time for you to go to bed. <laughs> I honestly don't know how I would respond if my dad called me at like 8.15, 8.30. He said, I'm going to bed. It's time for you to go to bed. I had lunch. I had dinner with my dad yesterday. We went over to my parents' house for my sister's birthday, who turned 21. Deviation. So... My younger sister, Christy, turned 21, and we're going to bed, and Natalie goes, Mom, Aunt Christy's older than you are. She's 21. And Seth goes, no, she's not. Mom's 34. And he goes, and Dad's 50. And I'm just like, you're getting no birthday presents this year. I am not 50. Sarah thought it was the funniest thing. But I, I, tell, I asked my dad, I said, Dad, if you called me and told me it'd be eight thir- like you're at 8 o'clock, you said it's bedtime, I don't know what I'd say. And he goes, what would you say? I'd probably, and I thought about it, I said, you're, probably, you're joking, right? And he's like, no, I'm serious. If my dad would said, no, I'm serious, I want you to go to bed, I would say, dad, thank you very much for that information. I got to go, I got stuff to do, goodbye. And I'd hang up on him. I love my dad, but my sister, Stephanie, who's older than me, almost 40, she laughed. She was like, ha, dad tell you to go to bed. Now, in contrast, what happens in my house when I tell Seth, Natalie, and Ben to go to bed? My children do not sleep through the night, but they know when bedtime comes, dad's not screwing around. <laughs> they get in bed. Yes, sir, bedtime. Happy faces, brush teeth, jammies on, bedtime. They all listen and do what I say. I have that fatherly power over my kids, and it's, it's nice, even though my dad doesn't have that over me. So there's a fundamental shift in our relationship with our parents at several points in life. When we're a baby, we have a very different relationship than a child. And then when we grow up and become an adolescent, we have a very different relationship. And as we become a young young adult, when we hit our 20s, we have a different relationship. And now as an adult, my relationship with my dad and my mom has shifted again. Our relationship evolves and it requires us to reevaluate how we interact. And it also changes what the Bible says and how it applies to us. Well, it doesn't change what the Bible says, but it changes how it applies to us. Because God's word always applies to us. The passage that we're going to look at will apply to you for the rest of your life. 
But the application of that passage will vary depending on your status uh, of how old you are, whether or not you're living with your parents, and all that sort of stuff. So the Bible can change in its application. So let me use this as an example. Sometimes we need to ask for forgiveness from someone else. The Bible says, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. So sometimes you've got to go to somebody and say, hey, I wronged you, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And the Bible expects that person in Christ to forgive you. Conversely, occasionally somebody will come to you and say, hey, I did this and I'm sorry. And the Bible then applies and says, hey, as Christ has forgiven you, forgive each other. So God expects you to forgive that person. So it's the same biblical truth. It's just applied on different sides. So let's take a dive into Ephesians 6 and look at how we are called to relate to our parents. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. This is the children side of things. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. We're going to focus most of our time on verse 1. And to start off with, when Paul says children, he actually uses the Greek word technon, which is a generic term for children. Technon is the word he uses. There are a bunch of uh, words used for children in the Bible. There's the word uh, pidon, huyas, brephoi, which means babies, technia, which means little children. Uh, there's a bunch of different words for children in the Bible. This is sort of your blanket term for it in Greek. Paul uses it. John uses it. Uh, Peter uses it. It's just sort of a generic term for children. It doesn't mean male, female. It's not age-restricted. It's just offspring. So what Paul says here is not just for small kids or teenagers or young adults. It's applicable to all children of any age, although that application changes. And his command here in verse 1 is simple. Obey your parents in the Lord. And obey here, I'm going to do a little bit more Greek study here because it's actually really interesting when I looked all this stuff up. Obey is a very... Uh, it's, the word is portmanteau. Do you know what that is? Thank you. Portmanteau is when you take two words and mush them together and make a new word. Have you ever heard of the word smog? That's a portmanteau. Smoke and fog put together, we get smog. So the portmanteau here in Greek is a word called hupakuo. And it comes from two Greek words. Hupo, meaning under, like hypoglycemic. That's where we get hypoglycemic from, because you're low blood sugar. Hupo is the Greek word there. And then the other word is akuo, which means listen. If you hear something and it's an acoustic set, it means it's uh, something you hear with your ear, like the, like the English word acoustic. So the word hupakuo means to listen in sort of underneath, in respect, in submission uh, to someone. That's why they translate it, obey. And I found it fascinating that the word hupakuo is used when Jesus calms the storm. So when Jesus, uh, Jesus is asleep in the ship, the disciples are like, we're going to die. Jesus, wake up, we're going to die. And Jesus comes and he's like, peace. And the, health, you know, the storm stops and the sea becomes calm. The disciples say, who is this that the wind and the sea, hupakuo, obey, listen to him? So for small children, the, the, the command here is actually pretty simple. It's, we're called to obey your parents. Uh, when you're little, God gave you parents for a reason. They are to guide you in becoming a human. They are to show you how to have a good relationship, how to be kind. 
They're given to you to help you mature and to deal with life's deal with life's stresses. You are to rely on your parents as a resource to help you develop properly. Uh, They're given to you to help you know Jesus and to follow him. One of your parental responsibilities is to help your kids become Christians. And naturally, your parents are to be obeyed if they're given such an important job. But that's easy. That's small kids. And the youngest person in here is probably you, Connor. Right? No pressure. No pressure. Nobody here is in their teens. Right? Oh. (laughs) Mom. Wait, she's a teenager. Kyle's not a teenager. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Kyle. We'll feel for you, man. We're all grown up. We're not little kids anymore. Okay? We don't get told at 8 o'clock, hey, it's bedtime, and we go, okay. Hey, eat your vegetables. Okay. We're adults. We're grown ups. For older children, this command is not obey. I would say instead it's heed or listen to. The relationship moves as you grow up. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. As you grow up, your parents, instead of being over you and you obeying everything they say, instead the relationship evolves and it shifts. And you become a partner in this developing person's life. Moms and dads, you do not have complete manipulative control over your children. At some point, there is a shift in the relationship and you partner with them. Let me tell you when that happened in my life. When I hit about 13, I was amazed at how dumb my parents got overnight. (laughs) I hit about 13, my parents didn't know squat. When I was 10, they knew everything. Mom and Dad, how do I untie this knot? Wow, that's amazing. Mom and Dad, how do I set the TV up? How do I connect the Nintendo? I don't know what I'm doing. But when I hit 13, they got so dumb. And as a result of their stupidity, I'm being facetious here. I rarely listen to my mom and dad. I got this. Oh, no, 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 no. And then, then, then when they ask you to do stuff, Bobby, I don't know how to make this work. You're like, <laughs> how did you put your shoes on this morning? I cannot even understand. <laughs> and for about 10 years, they were the two dumbest people alive, in my opinion. I love my mom and my dad, but when I was about 13 to about 20, early 20s, I was like, My parents could have told me the sky is blue and I'd have gone out to check just to make sure. But when I hit about 23, I was surprised how smart my parents got all of a sudden. They had, sorry, what? Amazing. Amazing, I know. I'm not looking forward to that with my children. If Seth and Natalie and Ben repeat what I did, God help me. My parents had information and had wisdom that I needed as an adult. Hey, I got to do taxes now. How do you do taxes, Dad? Well, it's easy. I'll take you to my guy. Thank you. That's great. Hey, Dad, how do I fix this in my car, in my house? Well, let me help you. Man, how did you get so smart? I was impressed how much they had learned in a short time. Now, I'm kidding, of course. Please understand I'm kidding. I really do love my parents. and They're both actually pretty smart. Uh, But in our teen years, we have a bit of a rebellion. We dissociate from our family of origin in order to create our unique self. That's what we do. It's part of our growing up. We have to distance ourselves from our parents. We distance ourselves from our siblings, and we create our own self. We identify more with our friends, with the people we hang out, rather than our mom and our dad. It's normal. It's part of growing up. Teenagers should rebel. But 
really in. But we should not completely, completely write off our parents during this crucial time. You have to make your own family. You have to find your own way. But you don't write off your parents and just ignore them. Paul's command here speaks to teens and to young adults. He's like, don't brush off your parents. Don't just say, no, they don't know anything. They have wisdom, they have knowledge, and they have experience that you desperately need. And you may think they're super dumb and so uncool, you know, as you're dressed like a lumberjack and listening to Dave Matthews Band, which was the 90s. But your parents aren't quite as foolish as you think they are. So the command in the Bible moves from obey to instead to give heed and honor them as your parents, which Paul immediately quotes in verse 2, honor your father and mother. But there's one contingency placed here in obeying and listening to your parents, and it's that last little bit. Obey your parents in the Lord, which is important. And in God's view, as God created the family and in the current time frame of human history that we're in, in God's view, the ideal family is one that is entirely in the Lord. God, in his ideal family, says mom and dad are following Jesus and the kids are following Jesus. Mom and dad are in the Lord and their kids are doing their best to be in the Lord as well. Paul expects Christian parents, I'm going to say this, Paul expects Christian parents to be the best and to be the healthiest parents in the world. Because think about it. We got God living inside of us. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in your heart. He should be doing the work of sanctifying you, right? And as he sanctifies you, you should manifest the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are all excellent things when raising a child. Kindness. When they do something, put their shoes on the wrong feet for the 7,000th time, instead of taking their shoes off and hitting them with them. You say, no, this one goes on this foot, this one goes on this foot. Do you need any help? I love you. Please put your shoes on the right feet. That's kindness. Self-control. When you want to scream, when you want to yell, when you want to grab something and throw it out the window, saying, no, that is not healthy. I need to speak to my child with kindness and with love. Joy. How many people here wish there were more joy in their house growing up? Why is everyone's hand not up? (laughs) Unless your parents the whole time when you were kids were like, (laughs) you could use more joy in your house growing up. But Paul here expects and trusts that the Holy Spirit will have begun the work of cleaning up your garbage, cleaning up your problems, cleaning up with your incorrect ways of interacting with people. He will have spent years correcting dysfunctional behavior, teaching you gentleness, teaching parents gentleness and kindness and patience. Overcoming years of improper behavior and actions as a result of the sanctifying work the Holy Spirit has been doing in your life, Paul expects parents that are in the Lord, that are Christian parents, to be the best parents ever. And even parents that were converted after they have kids. Even if you had kids and you did a bad job but you were converted later, the Holy Spirit can start working in your life. And he expects the parents to be so sensitive to the Holy Spirit having God inside you, that you can correct your behavior on the fly. As you're about to do something, you can listen to the Holy Spirit say, don't do that. Calm down, take a breath, listen. Keep your cool, it's not a big deal. God can help you parent. You know, spend some extra time with her today, she needs it. 
today and every day. Tell your kids you love them. Those are the things that the Holy Spirit can bring to mind and help us to be better parents. And with these commands, Paul is speaking to believing children of believing parents. And he ends with the phrase, for this is right. And the idea is that God wants you to do this. God set families up to work like this. God intends for believing children to listen to, to heed, to obey their believing parents. He set it up at the beginning, children obeying your parents. And why does he add this? Why to remind Christians that obeying your parents is right? Because sometimes it's hard to listen to and honor your parents. I'm just going to speak for my own instance. I spent time with my family yesterday, and I love my parents. But even after years, occasionally, they know the buttons to push. And when they push that button that strikes at the core of your being, because they've been around for the last 36 years and to know exactly what's going on, when they go, I don't really care, and they push the button, it's hard to honor your father and mother to respect them and to treat them kindly. You want to go, oh, what? Do you want to say that? Hold on, let me get my Rolodex of information on stuff I've got on you out. Start flipping through it and find a good one. You guys know what a Rolodex is, right? Thank you. <laughs> Ever since my youngest brother went to the record player my parents had and said, Mom and Dad, what's this? Is this new? No, that's actually really old. But listening to your parents is hard to do, especially as a teenager, especially as a young adult. I am thankful that God has wrought kindness and patience into my life. Because as a teenager, it had been like, all right, gloves are coming off. Let's do this. (laughs) But it is difficult, and it is a challenge. But obeying, listening, honoring your parents is what God is telling you to do. And as I've been explaining this, as you've been listening to say, okay, I'm supposed to listen to and honor and give heed to my parents? What does that look like in real life? Yes, it sounds nice. That in, theoretically, yeah, it sounds great. We should do that. But aren't, aren't there exceptions to the rule? Do we have to obey them in everything? If only, if only there were a perfect human whose life we could look at and see how he honored his parents, even in the midst of disagreement about life directions and plans. Is there a, such an example? Jesus, thank you. He disagreed with his parents about very important life choices that he was making. And it shows us how we can honor our parents even when we disagree. Flip to Mark 3. If you have your Bibles, I love Mark 3. Because it's, you've read the Gospels before. You've read Mark probably a couple times. You've never seen the big fight that goes on in Jesus' family in Mark 3. You've never seen it. Right, Mark? See? He knows. He's named after the book. Mark 3. I'm serious, flip there. There's a fight in Jesus' family. In Jesus' family, Mary, who had angels come and tell her you're going to have Jesus. Mary and Jesus get in a fight. And it's the thing, the reason why you've never noticed it is because it's broken up into two sections. And you kind of have to look for it. Uh, The first section is Mark 13 to 21. And the next section is Mark 31 to 35. But if you look in Mark 3, Mark 3, verses 7 to 8, let's look at that. 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Jesus is preaching. He's popular. He's doing miracles. He's multiplying food and healing people. I want to go see this guy. And at this point, his family is probably proud of him. Jesus, he's a popular public speaker in our country. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. He's honoring God. That's great. But in verse 13, this is where it starts getting good. Verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. He appointed 12 apostles. So he has a big group of disciples. Jesus has people following him around everywhere, guys who just left everything and followed him. And from that group, probably of around 70 to 80, he picks out 12 to be apostles, to duplicate his ministry, that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. You read this and you're just like, yeah, of course, this is what Jesus does. He calls apostles, apostles to himself. Why is this special? But he's actually, Jesus is what? What's his profession? Carpenter. Carpenter. The actual Greek term is like a laborer. He is a guy who's, he, he could have actually been a mason, but we say carpenter because it fits with the whole nailing him to the cross thing. But he could have been a mason. He could have been a carpenter. He could have been, he's a guy that works with his hands. He's not an intellectual elite. He's not been to school. He's blue collar. He's blue collar. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you, Josh. I was reaching for it. My brain's like, nope, we're going to get those words away. He's blue collar. But when calling not just having disciples that follow him around and like listening to him, but in calling disciples to him, appointing them to be apostles, which means messengers, to duplicate his ministry and to have his authority, he is in fact operating like a Jewish rabbi. And he's sending these guys out to do the same thing he's doing. This is big. Because it's no longer just, oh, Jesus is talking and people listen to him. This is, he's starting to act like a rabbi. And how does his family react? Go down to verse 21. Have you read this? When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Mary and his brothers, and maybe his sisters too, just, they said they had to talk together as a family. You know how your family talks when you're not there and they talk about you? They make fun of you? That's just my family? Okay. They talk about you when you're not there. So Jesus is out doing his thing. They get everybody together and they're like, Jesus, what's he doing? Do you hear he's picked out like that Peter guy and James and John and that Judas guy and he's sending them out to cast out demons? Did you hear this? He's gone crazy. It was nice when he was just teaching and he was popular. But now he's like acting like a rabbi? We can't have that. What will the neighbors say? We'll, our family will have shame and dishonor heaped upon it. It's not good. People are going to be like, stay away from those people, <laughs> Jesus' family. There's Jesus. I, they didn't have a last name, so I'm sitting there trying to like, stay away from the Smiths. Nope, Jesus' last name wasn't Smith. And it wasn't Christ. Christ is a title. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. But stay away from Jesus' family. He, they, he's pretty weird. You don't know if the mom's crazy too. Maybe the brothers are crazy. You know how people talk. You have one sibling who's weird, and all of a sudden your whole family is typecast. They're all weird like he is. So they go out to Jesus. They go out to Jesus to seize him, to bring him home. 
boy's gone crazy. We're going to bring him at home. He's going to be a carpenter. He's going to shut his yap, and everything will be fine. We can just forget the whole thing ever happened. They're doing this to Jesus, okay? Jesus' mother and brothers are doing this to him. Now skip down to verse 31. This is why you probably haven't seen the fight. Skip down from here, 21 to 31. And his mother and his brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called him. Because we read this story, and we'd always see is the nice teaching moment Jesus has. Jesus' mom and his brothers show up, and they're like, hey, Jesus, we want to go out to lunch. And Jesus says, uh, the crowd was sitting around him. They said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he goes, who are my mother and brothers? And looks around, and he says, everybody who does the will of God is my mother and brother and sisters. Right? And it's nice. And it sounds great, right? This is a wonderful teaching moment where Jesus includes all of us in his family. But you don't see the family argument that is going on behind the scenes. His parents, let me back up just in case you forgot. His family said he's out of his mind and they wanted to bring him home so he would shut up and stop doing what he's doing. So they went and they came and talked to him. Now after I finished this message, I thought about this and I said, look at his response. Isn't that kind of rude? Who are my mother and brothers? And he looks around and he's like, everybody here who does God's will is my mother and brothers. Kind of as to his family like, sorry guys. We can't miss the conflict that is going on here. Jesus is doing what God wants him to, right? He's preaching. He's healing. He's multiplying food. Jesus is 100% doing what God wants for his life. But his mom is here. Jesus' mom shows up and wants him to give this up and go home. Enough of this. You've done enough. We look bad enough. Just come home and it'll be fine. And Jesus, when his mom and brothers come looking for him, knows what they're going to do, knows what they're trying to do. He understands his family dynamic. And even if he didn't, I'm sure the Holy Spirit was like, your, parent, your mom's here and your brothers are here and they're going to take you home. Don't go with them. <laughs> what does he do? Does he honor his mother? Does he give heed to his parents and say, oh, I have to go home. Sorry, sorry, lepers. Sorry, dead people. I got to go home. I can't heal you. I can't raise you from the dead. Sorry, hungry people. No more multiplying food. Does Jesus go home with him? Well, no, because Mark 4, 1 isn't Jesus went home and was a carpenter the rest of his life. It would have shortened the book. It would have shortened the book. <laughs> Twelve chapters taken off the end of Mark. Instead, Jesus here focuses on what God is calling him to do. Even though his mom clearly wanted to temper his ministry, his heavenly father had a higher calling, which takes priority. I would have loved This is one of these things where I'm like, Mark, I wish you would have written down the argument that his family had. Because you know after the crowd starts clearing out, the mom and brothers are going to make their way to Jesus. Jesus wasn't just like, peace him out of here. He's going to go talk to his mom. He's going to go talk to his brothers. I would love to have had that documented. What did she try to pull? Jesus Christ, what are you doing? Which is funny because you can wake that into a sermon and it's not cussing. How did it end? How did the, like, because you know she's going to be like, you should come home. You should be doing your work. You should be taking care of me. You're the oldest son. You have a place of honor in the household. You should, this, stop. Come home, Jesus. And Jesus is like, God told me to do this. Come on, mom. And there was brothers, James and Joseph. And yeah, he had a brother named Judas. So he probably was like, sorry, guys, I got to do this. How did it end? Did Mary and his eldest brother walk off and huff? Ah, 
Jesus, you never listen. You know, did his mom start crying and he's like, sorry, can't do anything. Side hug, walk away. That's the kind of stuff that happens in our houses, right? You get an argument, somebody storms off, somebody starts crying, somebody throws something. But here, Jesus is focusing on what God wants him to do even when his mom and his brothers and his family disagree. That is so hard to do. We don't know how the argument ended or how it even went. But Jesus kept on ministering despite what his family wanted him to do. So for us, how do we follow Jesus' example? We are to listen to our parents. We are to honor them. God put them in your life for a reason. They are good to have. But when God tells us to do something, we obey even if our parents disagree. And in fact, we can honor our parents even in disagreement by listening to their concerns, by being kind and explaining that we're doing what God wants us to do. Because if they're in the Lord, remember that's the whole command here, obey your parents in the Lord. If your parents are believers, then in truth, the best way we can honor our parents is doing what God wants. Because our parents raised us to be followers of Jesus, right? Your parents raised you to be a follower of Jesus. I hope your parents are believers. And if they are a follower of Jesus, they want you to be a follower of Jesus. Not a churchgoer, not a Bible reader, not a prayer, but a follower of Jesus. So the thing that honors them the best is when we say, I'm following Jesus. I know you wanted me to do this with my life, but I got to follow Jesus. Let me share from you my own story about being called to ministry. I might have shared this before. But when I was 20 years old, I was studying at UTD, excellent school. I wanted to work at NASA. NASA's awesome, guys. NASA's so cool. If I weren't in the ministry and I weren't teaching in a seminary, I still want to work at NASA. But I had a falling out with physics. I realized, I'm like, man, I'm not going to touch anybody's life working at NASA. Yeah, I'm going to do cool stuff, but do you know the name of the person that landed the rover on the moon in 2018? Or moon, Mars. All the, you don't know any of those guys. You're like, oh yeah, we landed something on Mars. It's going to check the internal temperature of the planet. That's pretty cool. You don't know any of those people. And it doesn't impact your day-to-day life. I said, God, I want to do something that impacts my day- people's day-to-day life. I want to do something that, for you. I want to do something great. And very clearly, one of the few very absolutely 100% clear times God spoke to me, he said, go to seminary. And I went, I can do that. So I changed my major to history from physics. I had all these physics classes. I had heat and mechanics and thermodynamics. And I had uh, quantum and I had light and uh, all this different stuff and all these different physics classes. And I said, uh, I can't continue on with this because this will take too long. So I went and looked at the degree program. History has had like half the degree was electives. So all my physics classes were just electives and I had to completely change over, do all these history classes. And I graduated in a year and a half, applied to Dallas Seminary, got into Dallas Seminary on April 1st, which was a different funny story. Because my mom... You got an acceptance letter from Dallas Seminary. Ah, ha, 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 funny, Mom. No, I'm serious. But when I told my parents, before I even got into Dallas Seminary, before I changed degrees, before any of that happened, I went and told my mother and my father, who are both Christians, who were raised by Christians, (laughs) so I have generations of Christianity in my family, who are my parents, who raised us to be Christians, who talked about listening to the Holy Spirit, who are genuinely followers of Jesus. I said, I think God wants me to go to seminary. They looked at me and said, you're wasting your life. 
Hold on. <laughs> they did not agree. They said, you are making a catastrophic life decision. My parents know me. They know I'm all left brain. I'm pretty sure my left brain takes up my whole brain, and I've got this little sliver on the right half. I'm left-brained. I am math, science, dude. I love physics. I love biology. I love chemistry. I loved math classes. Remember calculus, differential equations? I love that stuff. Sitting there writing out numbers, figuring out, okay, how do I do this? That is my game, man. I'm in the zone when I'm doing math stuff. They said, Bobby, don't be a pastor. You'd be a good lawyer. You'd be a good physician. You'd be a good accountant. Probably the last one. I'd have been a good accountant, yeah. But they're like, do anything other than being a pastor. Do you know how little pastors make? You can make six times that much being a doctor, being a physician. They also cited my short temper. Of all my siblings, I've got Stephanie, Bobby, Danny, Andy, Kenny, Mary, Timmy, Christy, Joey. I've got eight, seven siblings, eight kids in my family, all full blood. I have the shortest temper of all of my siblings. They're like, do you think that's going to be real good for a pastor? A pastor who has a short temper and who gets mad super easy? They also cited my lack of people skills. You know, you tend to grate people the... Thank you. You tend to grate people the wrong way. If I haven't yet, I will. Don't worry. Somebody can be like, man, Pastor Robert's kind of a jerk. I apologize in advance. I try to overcome it, but that's, that's part of the way I am. I am very left brain. You approach me with a problem. I'll analyze it analytically and give you an answer. And you might be like, that's kind of cold and mean. And I'm like, sorry, that's the answer I came up with. <laughs> Also with love and compassion woven in there somewhere. <laughs> they said, you're left-brained, you're not good with people, you need to be in a box somewhere doing math problems all day. <laughs> That's what my parents said I should be doing with my life. You'd be an excellent accountant. I think about my own accountant. Not a lot of people skills, really good with math. I would be a good accountant. And while I did listen to them, and I was kind of kind to them, I had to follow God's calling on my life. I said, I know, I know. I know doctors make a lot of money. I would love to drive a Mercedes someday and not worry about a house payment. But God's calling me to the ministry. I got to do this. And now I think years later, I think and I hope they see that God was behind my calling, that it really was God saying go to seminary and it wasn't me looking for an easy out. And maybe, just maybe, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I feel like I am. Now, everything I've just said, I'm sort of wrapping up here. Everything I've just said, including my own example, comes from a Christian perspective. I'm a Christian, as are my parents. Uh, the example of Jesus that I use from the Bible is one of faith. He could have appealed to God. He could have said, Yahweh is calling me to do this, Mom. And her mom would have been like, yeah, I know. <laughs> but for us Christians, we honestly have it pretty easy in honoring our parents. We can appeal to a higher authority. We can just be like, Jesus told me to do it, and then it's kind of your trump card. We have a higher authority to which we're both submitted. And we can explain that he's in charge and we're just following his orders. God told me to go to seminary. We'll have a different discussion about Jesus told me to, okay? I hear Bethany and Tom back there whispering. I'm on to you two. But what about when we don't have believing parents? What about if my parents, you're sitting there going, Pastor Robert, my parents aren't Christians. Anyone here have that struggle? My parents aren't Christians. How do I, can, do I still, like, what do I do? 
Or what about parents who may not have upheld their end of the deal and were unkind to you? They may be Christians, but maybe they weren't the best parents. You're like, why should I listen to them? I look at their life choices and I go, it's not gone well for you. It really doesn't give me a lot of reason to want to listen to you. They pushed your buttons growing up. They didn't, didn't do as God commands. They didn't uphold their end of what a godly parent should be. Do I still have to listen to them? Do I still have to honor them? How can we have a healthy relationship with our parents even when they didn't do right by us? There's a biblical command here that I think is actually very helpful for family life. I'm not going to preach on it too much because I'm stealing material from next week, but I thought it was important enough that I needed to include it. Romans 12, 18. I love this verse. Memorized it in a different translation, so the ESV throws me off. But if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's two parts to this. The first thing is that God wants peaceful relationships in every part of your life. God wants peaceful relationships in every part of your life. He wants your relationship with your parents to be great and peaceful, your relationship with your kids, your brothers and sisters. God wants that. And the first place that there should be peaceful relationships is in our family. Even if we don't agree 100% with our families on everything, you can disagree and be kind with people. Despite what happens on the internet every day, you can disagree with somebody and still be kind to them. And our families should be the first place we exercise grace toward others, and it's especially to our parents and our children. God expects us to cultivate peace around us. What does he say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So God wants us to live peaceably with all. If possible, live peaceably with all. But that middle part, you can't forget that. So far as it depends on you. Sometimes you may want peace in a relationship. You may say, I want this relationship to be peaceful and harmonious. I want to reconcile with this person. I want it to go great. But the other person will have no part of it. I have a brother that I wish I could have a good relationship with. I want so bad to have a peaceful, harmonious, getting along relationship with him. I want that. God wants that. But apparently he doesn't because everything that comes out of that boy's mouth is mean and harsh and cutting. And it's so hard for me to bite my tongue, but I remember this verse. So far as it depends on me, live peaceably with this one. So even though I want peace and I want a reconciled relationship and he wants no part of it, I trust that God will bring peace here first. I don't think God wants us forcing peace on anybody. I don't think he wants us forcing reconciliation. Hey, you have to, you have to do this. No, you have, to for, you have to forgive me. God doesn't make us, anyone forgive us. But I think the idea is we need to take peace as far as it will go. And sometimes that peace is, the farthest it goes is the end of your nose. That rhymes and I didn't mean for it to. (laughs) Take that peace as far as it goes and no further. Some relationships, there might be a fight. And you can take the peace to them and say, hey, let's be reconciled. And they're like, yeah, okay. And you can sort of mend the relationship and it's good. Some people will just welcome that on in and say, yes, I want peace. Let's, Let's resolve this. And some people are like, oh, heck no. 
You can even say, I'm sorry for everything that I've done. And you can list it all out. And you'll say, would you please forgive me? And they'll still say no. But here, we need to have the peace inside of us. You can have peace in your heart, but the other person won't talk. Let me tell you, that's okay. Because you've taken the peace as far as it will go. Ideally, God wants us to bring that peace all the way from him to us to them. But sometimes the peace only goes as far as us, and that's okay. It stinks, and it's difficult, but that's okay. At least we have peace. At the very least, you should have peace. God wants you to be at peace. And if you can take that to other people, you can bring harmony to a marriage, to a sibling, to a coworker. great. But if they won't have it, at least you can be the example of peace. More on this next week. We'll go a little bit more into detail. But as I conclude... I'm throwing this in here as one last thing. I'm big on talking. One of the best ways you can honor your parents is to talk to them. Talk about your childhood. Talk about your past together. Share the good times, the bad times, everything in between. Maybe even ask them about their childhood. Hey, Mom and Dad, tell me about yours. And you can at least try to bring healing and peace to the relationship. Let me tell you, if you guys are like me, you know which parents you can talk to and will have an easy time bringing peace to and which parents you cannot talk to and will not have an easy time bringing peace to. But let me say, if you've tried and you know you, know you can't get anywhere, let God bring that peace into your heart. And if you can't heal the relationship, at least you've tried. But even if you make zero headway with somebody, at least you tried. And I think that's all God wants. You have peace. And you've tried to make more peace. You've done your part. So to wrap up, I think this is something that God wants for us. Ask God if there are any relationships he wants to heal in your heart today. Is there something that God wants to heal? Even if it's just on your end, is there forgiveness you need to extend? Is there something you need to let go? Is there something you're holding on to? Maybe start with your parents. Let me get my list out of things that I can forgive my parents for. Maybe even your kids and go from there. Start with family relationships because I think God wants us to have peaceful family relationships. First, ask God to bring healing to you. Ask him to let you forgive and let go of bitterness and then extend it out to other people. Because God wants us to be peacemakers. He wants us to have peace, but I also think he wants us to make peace around us. And that starts first and foremost in our families. So let's pray and just ask God what he wants to do. I'll end with that. Lord Jesus, I invite your presence here this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would rest upon every single person here and that you would draw us near to yourself. And as we're talking about family relationships, God, I know it can bring up a lot of hurtful memories and I know it can bring up a lot of difficult situations. But God, we know that you are in charge. And at the very least, you want peace in our hearts. So Lord, I ask that you would point out hurt in our hearts, unforgiveness, maybe bitterness, anger we have to let go of. I ask that you would point this out in our hearts right now. And if as you've been listening, you can think of 
situations or people. That's what you need to be forgiven. Forgive that other person. Let go of your bitterness and anger. Having peace is infinitely better. Even if the person's been, um, been with the Lord, even if they've been dead for 10 years, you can still hold on to bitterness against them. Let it go. Even if you'll never see him again, let it go. Lord, I ask as you bring healing to our hearts and as you bring peace into our hearts, that you would help us to be peacemakers. Bring peace to our family, family relationships. Help us to bring peace in our relationship with our parents and with our children. I thank you for all the good that you're doing, Lord Jesus. I ask that you would draw us all near to you. Make us a church of peace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.